So have you ever noticed that, that sometimes troubles kind of come in batches? Right? You know, like, light, yeah, somebody said amen already. You know, life can be going along really smoothly, and then all of a sudden, bang, they hit you. Right? Things go wrong. And not just one thing, but several things, and usually all at once. And, you know, you can just tell it's going to be one of those really rotten days. You know, like, like the kind of day when you expect to wake up and hear the sound of birds singing outside your bedroom window, and you find vultures circling overhead instead. Okay? And then you, you head out to work, and the horn on your car gets stuck, and not only does it stick, it, it stays on right as you pull onto the highway behind a whole group of hell's angels. And you finally make it to work only to find out there's been an IRS agent waiting in your office for the past two hours. And when you finally, you finally make it through the day, you call your wife when you're on your way home from work and you say, you know, honey, I'd really just like to eat out tonight. And you come home to find a sandwich waiting on the porch. <laughs> Did you ever have a day like that? Well, may, maybe not exactly like that. I hope not exactly like that, but you, you get the point. But no matter how strong and independent we think we are, there are times in life that just knock us down. When things happen that are outside of our control. When things just basically don't go the way that we planned. And the truth is, trouble is something that all of us have to deal with. Nobody sails through life without storms. Because those are just the type of things that are a universal part of the human condition. But what isn't universal is how we deal with it. Because you see, you and I as followers of Christ, we have assets to tap into in our battle against these things that folks outside of Christ just don't have. And in our text today in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to explain to us that when it comes to our worries and our anxieties over all the, the ups and downs of life, that it's possible for us to have not only peace with God, but peace inside our hearts. And it's not going to be some kind of high-in-the-sky, positive-thinking, reality-denying, name-it-and-claim-it kind of promise. This is going to be, instead, a real-world, rubber-meets-the-road declaration forged in the reality of all of the things that the Apostle Paul went through. So we're continuing our look at the book of Romans. We're in chapter 5 this morning, beginning in verse 1. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You know, as a, as a lover of history, I've always had an interest in basically the story behind the story of the great hymns of the church. Stories that, that tell how these beloved songs came to be written and the circumstances that surrounded the hymn writer. And so I want to just share with you a brief story that was written down by a man named Richard Donovan with you. Uh, it's a 
basically the story about the hymn that Pastor John so graciously agreed to sing on one day's notice. And uh, here's the information, the introduction to that story that I want to share with you. Donovan writes, During an average tenure in ministry, I would guess that many pastors do 70 or more funerals before they retire. But the story I recount to you today didn't happen over the full span of a ministry. In fact, it wasn't even a full year because in one single day, Pastor Martin Rinkard performed burial services for 70 people. And he did the same thing the next day, and the next day, and the next. It was the height of the Thirty Years' War, and Reverend Rinkart was the only pastor left in the German city of Eilenburg. Over the past three decades, one army after another had pillaged the fields of Germany and ransacked its towns. And as a result, refugees fled to walled cities like Eilenburg until they were so overcrowded that famine and plague ran rampant. And in 1637, Pastor Martin Reinkert buried nearly 4,500 people, including many of his friends, his neighbors, and finally his own dear wife, leaving him to raise their young children alone. Yet during this horrific war that would bring such desolation, Reinkert composed these words, Nun danket alle Gott mit Herzen, Mund, und Handen. Now thank we all our God with heart, and mouth and hand. Incredible that he could write that, isn't it? Could you do that? But you know, it's an incredible example, too, of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5 when he said, we can rejoice in our suffering. And for Reinker, that was more than just words. It wasn't just kind of a, a mental ascent. It wasn't a relationship with God that was a mere tip of the hat to the tradition of the day. His faithful service in doing this throughout that horrible year and after, confess a faith that saw beyond his circumstances. But you know, that's not always easy to do. Because so often, our faith becomes myopic. We, we become nearsighted with it. When all we do is just see the trouble around us. Or feel the suffering that we're going through. Or we just taste the agony of life, or, or maybe the pain of defeat in some area. Until you wonder how you can be joyful or thankful for anything. But then, right when you get to that point, the Holy Spirit, through these words of the Apostle Paul, open our eyes to see into the distance so we can catch a glimpse of all that God has in store for his children and filling us with this sense of peace so that we can sing along with Reichert for all that Christ has done for us. The writer John R. W. Stott said, the pursuit of peace is a universal human obsession, whether it is international industrial, domestic, or personal. Yet more fundamental than all of these is peace with God and a relationship with him, which is the first blessing of justification. I love that quote. He said, yet more fundamental than peace in any of these areas of life is peace with God and a reconciled relationship with him, which is the first blessing of justification. Because the truth is, we can never have peace in our hearts until we have peace with God. A peace that is the basis for facing the reality of all of those struggles that we go through. That's why Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said justified. And did you notice, just like we talked about in Sunday school when we looked at these verses, did you notice that that word is in the past tense? Justified. Because if you and I are in Christ, that is something that's already happened. 
that we've been justified. That speaks to that point in time when God brought you to saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And from that point on, you can say that you're justified. Now you may say, well, well, pastor, that sounds like one of those church words that I think maybe sounds good, but I never really quite understood it. I don't really understand exactly what it means, so I'm going to give you a really good example. You remember way, way back in the dark ages before we had computers, we had these old things called typewriters, right? Guys, you, JJ Kitty, you can, you can look at it maybe in a museum someday. Probably, I bet Grandma has an old one laying around the house somewhere. But remember how on typewriters you had to justify the margins by counting the spaces? Right? I mean, now today you can just punch a button on the computer and it'll justify the text all by itself. But back then you had to count the spaces to justify the margins, and that just meant that they were straight and even on both sides, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says, when this God who is holy looks at us who are sinful, if we are in Christ, he can say, you know what, you've been way out of line. But now because of what Christ has done, you're straight with me. He says, because of your crooked life, if you were in Christ, now you've been corrected by his holiness. You've been justified. So instead of focusing on our present troubles or our past sins, we can look back into the distance over 2,000 years and see on that center cross hung not just a man, but the eternal Son of God. And it's through his perfect, sinless life that we receive that blessed verdict. Justified. Acquitted. Forgiven. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty that you and I legally owed and not only pardoned us, but removed our guilt from us so that we are totally cleansed and now stand justified, or as it's been explained over, you've probably heard this several times, just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. Because at the cross, you and I are literally infused with the righteousness of Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, He, meaning Jesus, became sin on your behalf so that you could become the righteousness of Christ so that you could become the righteousness of Christ. That's why, and a couple of folks have asked me this, when we recite every week the Apostles' Creed and we say that Christ descended into hell, you know what we mean by that? We mean at that moment on the cross when Christ literally not just took our sins, but became our sins. And the Father turned away from him and separated himself from Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the very definition of hell, is separation from God the Father. Martin Luther said, we are sinners and thieves and therefore guilty of death and everlasting damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon himself and for them died upon the cross as all the prophets did foresee. That Christ should become the greatest transgressor, the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief and rebel and blasphemer that ever existed. Because our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, sent his only son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men. So that he could say to Christ, Be thou Peter, that denier. Be thou Paul, the persecutor and blasphemer and cruel oppressor. Be thou David, the adulterer. And be Adam, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. And be that thief which hanged upon the cross. And briefly, briefly, be thou that person which hath committed the sins of all men. And he says, This is the mystery of the riches of divine grace for sinners, for by a wonderful exchange, our sins are now not ours, but Christ's. And Christ's righteousness now is not Christ's, but ours. Now, I don't know about you, 
But the only response that I could have to a, a truth like that is to dedicate the rest of my life in service to the one who is willing to do that for me. I hope you feel that same way. But do you see how that changes our perspective on the day-to-day struggles that we go through? Because you see, if the, the sufferings and hardships of life ever make you wonder whether God really loves you, if your, your conscience accuses you, and if you ever seem to be, be lacking in life, or if your prayers seemed unanswered, listen again to that verdict that rings from the empty tomb of our risen Savior, and believe it. You've been justified. You've been forgiven. You've been acquitted. And don't let sufferings make you question God's love. Look to the cross and see how deep and how wide and how broad and how high is God's love for you and believe that you're justified. Don't, don't let your conscience weigh you down. Remember that you're free. Remember that you're forgiven. And whatever need or care you have, His throne room is open for you to call on Him in every trouble. And his doors aren't locked any longer because of your sins, because if we are in Jesus Christ, we've been justified by faith. And our Lord Jesus' righteous decree cancels our guilt. Do you believe that? But you know there's more, because the Holy Spirit not only does that, but opens our eyes to see beyond our present troubles and into the future, so that we can believe that nothing in this world, no matter what comes our way, is ever going to cancel that verdict. Any troubles that come are just a training ground that strengthens our faith and our hope and leads us to help others the way that Christ has helped us. And I know our hymn writer in that story today, Martin Rinker, believed that because, in fact, as the Thirty Years' War lingered on, that might be the only thing, the only real hope that he had left to him. No armistice, no truce, no peace treaty even is going to bring back his wife. Nothing that happened was going to bring back his neighbors, bring back his friends, or the thousands that died from from famine and disease. And even in the darkest days of the conflict, no matter how hopeless the world around him became, though he found his faith in Jesus Christ, a hope that wouldn't disappoint him. And we can find that same hope, too, when we look at the words in Romans when we read it. We can rejoice Two, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And he's saying, you see, that suffering tends to knock away all those pillars that we try to build our life and our hope on because we can't build them on our skill or on our our knowledge or our determination. We can't build our life on technology or on the government or on the economy or whatever because those trials and sufferings in life knock out all of those pillars until only Christ is left. And brothers and sisters, if you don't remember anything else that we talk about today, if you blank out on everything else as part of the sermon, I want you not to miss this. So please listen very carefully. There is a very big difference between belief in an outcome and faith in Almighty God. Right? I really want you to hear me on that. There's a huge difference, a gulf of difference between belief in an outcome and faith in Almighty God. And I'm going to give you an example. You know, every year for, for Christmas, Vicky's sister really graciously gets the kids these great balcony seats to the circus in Tampa. I guess last year was probably the last time, guys, right? But just, just imagine that you're there with us at the circus in Tampa, and a world-famous high-wire artist comes out of the, onto the ring and and the guy has accomplished so many amazing feats and been so successful that 
Folks have come to believe he can do almost anything. And the ringmaster comes out to the crowd. He says, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you believe that this daring man can ride safely over the high wire on a bicycle carrying someone on his shoulders? If you believe it, raise up your hand. You'd, you'd probably hold your hand up along with everybody else in the audience, wouldn't you? Along with everybody in the room. And the ringmaster looks around at this capacity crowd. He sees all these people seated there with their hands in the air. And he says, now who's going to be the first to volunteer to sit on his shoulder? <laughs> who's going to sit on his shoulder? Because you see, the difference between belief and faith is the difference between staying in your seat and volunteering to climb on the shoulders of the high wire artist. Because ultimately, faith is not about believing in things. Faith is about putting your trust in someone. It's not believing for things to happen. It's putting your faith in someone. And I think that's probably our biggest problem as Christians because we're always believing for something. We're believing for our desires or for our comfort or for our plans to come through instead of believing in the someone who superintends everything that he allows to happen. And here's the reason that's important. Because as much as God desires to bless us, as delighted as he is to answer our prayers, God's primary goal for us is not our happiness, but our holiness and our usefulness in the service of the kingdom. In another letter in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we're weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We're confident that as you share our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God has given us. And we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. As a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And so you see, Paul is saying when we face difficulties and hardships and fiery trials, that God can use them for our good and for his glory. And in just the same way that, that fire burns the impurities out of metal and tempers it so it gets harder, as we patiently endure the things that come our way, our faith is refined and our reliance on God is strengthened so that we can say in the words of Psalm 27, though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. Now that's trust, isn't it? Does anybody remember those old uh, Peanuts cartoons? You know, Charlie Brown, Snoopy. Anybody remember the one where Charlie Brown said, it's always darkest just before it gets totally black? Right? The eternal pessimist, right? Sometimes that's really true. Well, in September of 1639, Martin Rinkert's world got even darker because you have to realize he's already spent all of his adult life now pouring himself out in charity. He's, he's constantly giving away every scrap of food, every bit of clothing he could get his hands on for the people in Eilenburg, except for just the bare minimum he needed for him and for his kids to live on. But things were about to actually get worse. 
because by now the length and the scale of the Thirty Years' War had not only ravaged most of Central Europe, it had bankrupted most of the combatant powers because of the size of the army that they had to maintain. And because also by this time, most of the battles were being fought by hired mercenary troops. Do you know what happens when they run out of pay or provision? They would lay siege to any town that was handy, whether it was friend or foe. And in 1639, the Swedish troops that were supposed to be defending the cause of the Reformation against the backlash of the Pope and the the Christian Catholic princes surrounded the city of Eilenburg and demanded an incredible ransom, 30,000 florins, which is just an incredible amount of money in today's sums. And knowing that knowing that there was no money to pay out and barely enough food for that day, let alone an army. Not wanting to risk that the city would face any more destruction for the Swedes just to find out there was nothing to steal anyway, Martin Rinkert left the safety of those town's walls that were left to it to plead for mercy. Can you imagine trading places with him? He's already lost his family. He's lost all of his friends. He's lost the majority of his parish. He's lost his wife. And now the last vestige of the city that he loves is about to be destroyed by people who are supposed to be his friends. But you know what? His faith held firm. He didn't give in to bitterness even after living through three decades of hell on earth. He never lost confidence in the goodness and faithfulness of God that he recognized in Jesus Christ. And he could say, just like Job did in the midst of all of his trials in the Old Testament, Even if he kills me, I'll hope in him. Because he refused to be defined by his circumstances. He chose instead to rely on the unchanging character of a merciful God. So he leaves the city. He leaves the whatever meager fortifications were left to it. And walking past all of these battle-hardened men, he approached the Swedish regimental commander, and he fell on his knees in front of him, and he started to pray. Praying to the God of heaven's armies, to be delivered, and God heard from heaven and answered, and the Swedish captain was so moved by Martin's prayers and by his genuine demonstration of faith that he withdrew his demands and spared the city. And in thankfulness, in relief, in gratitude that was set against this devastating backdrop of a protracted war and economic collapse and personal loss, Martin penned the words of that little hymn for his children to sing as a table grace song that John just shared with us. Now thank we all our God with heart and hand and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices. For from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love that still are ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed, and free us from all ills in this world and the next. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and Him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Brothers and sisters, you see, no matter what difficulty we go through, no matter how things might look right now, don't look at your circumstances, but look up and remember God's faithfulness. And remember, he's that rock-solid hope that we can stand on. Just like we read today in Romans 5, he said, This hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us 
because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And that's a hope that doesn't disappoint. And it's not built on wishful thinking or a denial of reality, but on God's love in Christ as he gives us the Holy Spirit. That's what sustained Martin Reinker, that he could walk out and amidst all that, the battle that was raging around him. And that's what sustains us. It's the Holy Spirit working through the inspired word of God, through the sacraments to pour out his love into our hearts and training us in trouble so that in suffering we can still sing thanks and praise to God. Finally, for Martin, on December 10th of 1648, the treaty called the Peace of Westphalia finally brought an end to the Thirty Years' War. And history records for us that Rinkert and the people of Eilenburg took that hymn, the exact same tune that John sang it to today, and performed it in public celebration of the end of a conflict that most of these folks had known all of their lives. But now just think how much more we'll be able to sing when our earthly warfare is over. When you and I stand in the peace of that kingdom before the throne of heaven, and brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's something to be excited about. That's something to make you praise our God. But even better news is we don't have to wait. We can do it right now. We can sing that same song today right in the midst of all of life's earthly sufferings because we have a hope that will not disappoint. We won't be moved to serve God just for the sake of reward or just for the the hope to avoid damnation. But you and I, if we are in Christ, if we've truly been justified, if that guilty verdict has been claimed against our debt, then you and I are going to recognize that there is no greater reward than the gift of God himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we can truly sing with the saints of every age. Now, thank we all our God. Amen. Father God, we thank you today, Lord, for your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and for your goodness. And I thank you today, Lord, for all those that you're calling to yourself. I pray, Father God, you draw close to the hearts of those that you're leading this morning, that you would open them, that you would move them to respond in repentance and faith. Because, Lord, you promised if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. Not through the repeating of the words, Lord, but just from the true admittance of Christ into our hearts. So come now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and convict and move and receive all those that reach out to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.